Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight we'll be in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Lord, tonight we just ask you to open our hearts as we open your word. We appreciate so much, Lord, the opportunity to come before you transparently, to bear our souls, Lord, and open our hearts and just have your Holy Spirit in a way only he can come between our thoughts and our mind and our marrow and touch us and cleanse us and lift us up, Lord. And you know individually and uniquely what each of us needs tonight. And you love us like a tender shepherd, Lord, and we just come to you as your sheep and submit and commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, we were at the Sistine Chapel on the way back from our tour of Israel, and um, I can still feel the crick in my neck from looking up. And it's a trippy place. If We all know about it. Then you go and see it, and it's even trippier. Here's the first thing is that Michelangelo, who we all know painted it, that wasn't his primary gift. That was like a hobby. He, 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 he saw himself as a sculptor, and the Pope commissioned him to do this, and he did it grudgingly, but he did an okay job of it, if you ever get a chance to see it. I mean, wow. Um, but as you see the whole scope of it, it's, it's much, I guess, kind of like, like this, uh, in a certain amount of way. It's, a, it's an arched dome of a ceiling in, in the chapel there, and it's huge. And it lays out the whole story of creation. And each panel is just a a masterpiece unto itself. And if you pull up to one uh, really close, some of them are are lower, obviously, to the walls. You can just really focus on one face, for example. And then if you pull back a little bit and look back, you'll see the whole panorama, the scope of of creation and redemption and and the apostles. And it's it's unbelievable. What we want to do tonight is kind of get a mid-view of a family portrait. We don't want to just see one face, because that would be depressing seeing Cain. We don't want to see the all of creation. That would be too much. We want to kind of just pull back to mid-view and get a family portrait of the first family. The first family. Isn't that something? Adam and Eve and their offspring were the, the royal family. They were the first humans. I mean, think how how close their children were to creation, just one degree of separation. Let's look at the story tonight in Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offspring, his offering rather, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So here we are, the first family, and they're already fractured just barely out of the gates, and we've got conflict. We've got sibling rivalry. And we, most of us, all know what that can be like in a family. I helped, I raised a couple of high-voltage 
uh, kids. And sometimes I didn't, I didn't know if Daniel or Levi would survive, that one of them might not make it. There was intense rivalry and a powerful conflict went on. And, but it's not unique to us in our day and age. Adam and Eve had it happening to them. But imagine being a child of Adam and Eve. I mean, it would just be a remarkable thing. Um, so close, but so far. Living just outside the gates of paradise. Um, imagine attending a family devotion conducted by Adam. And you know they had them. I mean, what else did they talk about? You got, you got your weather, and you got your animals, and then you've got the Lord. And that's, that's pretty much what they've got. And a talking snake. Um, but you know that Adam evangelized his children. You know they had devotional time. And he told those stories. Oh, t- tell us, Dad. Tell us how you named the giraffe. Dad, Dad, Dad. Well, how, how did you meet Mom? Well, son, she was the only woman for me. <laughs> and they went over and over, and they ingrained the importance. I mean, they were... Um, certainly very well aware of the potential uh, their children had of following in their footsteps to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and they certainly took every step possible to avoid that. But the first family was a fallen family. And so they had probably the first fight at the family. And we can speculate what that might have been. You've probably never done this, but when you have a little tiff with your mate and then you, you aren't talking for a time and you begin communicating through the children. It's always such a mature thing to do, you know. And you can imagine them at dinner one time just saying, um, Abel, tell your mom to pass the fruit. She's so good at that. It's kind of... But they were, the, they were a family with a, a special relationship. And they teach us some important lessons tonight as we meander through Genesis chapter 4. Let's get a, a short history of the first time this word is ever used. Let's get it out of the way because in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, we find the word sin for the first time in the Bible. And we know that is significant. So let's get a, a short history of a small word with a large impact, and that is sin. It means to miss the mark. We know that. It means to disobey any of God's boundaries of, of omission or of commission. Uh, it is the first mention here, but it is not the first entrance of sin in the universe. We know that Lucifer was guilty truly of the original sin when he sought to exalt himself above God And that was uh, driven by pride and arrogance. He said, I will ascend the throne. I will be like the Most High. The the various I wills of Lucifer who ultimately became Satan. And this may be the first mention of sin in the Bible, but it's sure not the last. 448 times in the authorized version, 446 in the New King James, the word sin is mentioned. So it's rampant. It's rife with sin throughout the Bible. And, well, it should be. It's one of the most powerful things in the universe. So if we understand the cause of sin, we'll be able to move to the cure for sin. But we have to pause for a moment and understand what the cause of sin is along with the consequences. Sin is what is wrong with the world. 
every moral, relational, national, political, sexual, every possible problem you can name, the root is found in sin. All these things we talk about and wonder about and, and see on the news, they're all rooted in sin. And that's why the commentators come to an end, because they, they can only observe the fruit. They don't understand the root of sin. And so they see the national conflicts, they see the crimes, they see the abuse and all the horrific things that happen in the world, and they don't understand why. The flip side of that, and you've all heard this said, is that why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I'm here tonight to solve that dilemma for you. I'm here to answer that question. Bad things, this might surprise you, do not happen to good people because there are no good people. Mystery solved. Jesus said it. There are none good but God. All have sinned. All we have is, is, is uh, our, our hearts are continually full of wickedness and evil thoughts. Show me a good person, will you please? And then I'll show you their history. And if we could, we'd show you their heart, their thought life, their plans, things they would have done if they could have done and you'll discover there are no good people. And so we are all in the midst of the stream of a polluted human race as a function of sin. That is the cause. And you cannot rightly understand the world without taking in context sin. And unfortunately, it is um, being diminished and diluted in the world, as we will see here in just a minute. But again, going beyond the boundary in any way, that God has established any breach of God's boundaries is a function of sin. So that's the cause of sin. Uh, the consequence of sin is that we have been cursed. And we saw that Adam and Eve in Genesis earlier in our studies of, of the Bible from 30,000 feet, the, the outcome of their disobedience was the curse. We know what Adam had a separate curse. Eve had a different curse. And they both shared a joint curse that the human race in general has that we are, have fallen short of God's glory and that all have sinned and come short of his glory. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. And the thoughts of man are continually evil throughout the world and throughout our lives. And so we need to understand that sin is a very significant enemy. We've titled our message tonight, Crouching Lion, Hidden Sin. And we, t- we take that title from both our text tonight where the Bible says, don't you know, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And Peter warns us that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we have crouching lion and we have hidden sin. Both of them are significant adversaries in our lives today. And so uh, we understand that there are some principles of sin we need to come to. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, surely it will die. That's an important umbrella scripture to to understand. If anybody doubts that, look at the condition of, of the human race. Everybody is in the process of deterioration because of the curse because we aren't getting better and better in every way. We aren't evolving to a, a newer, higher plane. We are devo. We are devolving, if anything, from the, the, the plane that Adam and Eve lived on. Well, so we have the 
cause of sin was the fall, disobedience. The consequences of sin, all who have sinned will surely die. And that's a huge cost that we pay. And now I can happily segue into the cure for sin. Because God did not leave us in this dreadful condition. That's why Adam and Eve were taken out of the Garden of Eden, lest they partake of the tree of life. Or we'd be stuck like this forever. And that wouldn't be a pretty picture. But there is an end to sin. John 1.29, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that a wonderful scripture to ponder? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is the federal head principle of scripture. But just as we suffered because of Adam's defeat, we overcome because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And so that is God's genius plan to redeem mankind. But as we move through the rest of the chapter here, we see the failure of sacrifice on the part of Cain. And we understand that in the process of time, as he brought the offering of fruit to the Lord, it was at the same time that Abel brought the first fruits of a a living sacrifice. And this leads us back along the crimson thread to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, having discovered it as a function of being fallen. And um, now I'm speculating on this right now, I'll tell you that, but God brought an animal to Adam and Eve and he, he killed it. And he took the skins and he covered them with it. Now, what, what was Adam's relationship with the animals? He named them individually by species. Again, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm thinking that perhaps that was one of the animals that Adam personally knew. We don't know how he kept a relationship with the animal kingdom, but we can only imagine it must have been wonderful. But it very well could have been an animal that perhaps individually Adam had, had named that particular animal. And he knew it personally. I say that because if we take the crimson path all the way into the giving of the law later on, we understand the principle of the Passover lamb was this. That the the, the Jewish families once a year were to take an unblemished lamb into their home, a very small, cute, cuddly lamb, for four days and treat it like a pet. And after four days, they take that lamb and slaughter it. Now, parents, I want you to think what would happen in your family if you brought home a puppy. And I'm not being overly dramatic or gruesome. This is a very, very equal observation. If you brought a puppy home, a little fluffy collie, let's say, and the kids got to sleep with it and play with it for almost a week and, and get to know it, they probably would name it. And on the fourth day, you say, I'm sorry, kids. I have to take this puppy and sacrifice it. They'd be horrified. They'd be hysterical. You're taking my puppy and you're going to, you're going to kill it? You're going to cut its throat and, and take the blood? You'd have to take and set them down and teach them a profound and a deep and a rich lesson about what that sacrifice meant, how it covered their sin. It would be a tremendous lesson for them. And every year it would be repeated and they'd come to recognize the spring was coming and you, you bring that baby lamb and, oh no, we can't get attached to it, but it's so cute and for days it's running around the house. And the fourth day, 
You take it and sacrifice it year after year. God impacting the family with that lesson that without the remission of, of blood, there is, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so that's why I say perhaps the animal that, that Adam had to see killed was one he knew very intimately. In any case, we see the principle here with Abel that he brought an animal that he had raised and brought it as a sacrifice. Clearly, he had learned his lesson from Adam and Eve. They had taught him the principle of propitiation. There had to be the shedding of blood if there's going to be the forgiveness of sins. And we, we can't lose that cardinal principle in the church today, but it's gradually and, and almost consistently eking out of the public arena in the church. We're almost afraid to talk about sin. In his book, The History of Sin, John Portman, in the chapter called The Dilution and the Demotion of Sin, spoke of sin fatigue in our culture. And he predicted this was in the 90s, and we see it now. By the year 2000, using the word sin tells us more about the person saying it than the one you're referring to, because we're considered judgmental. He predicts there'll be a time in our culture when being a virgin will be considered a sin. And the Bible both predicts and condemns any culture that calls evil good and good evil. That's precisely the path we are on. The downward spiral. New York Times headline. In a show about sexual exploits, it said blushing is a sin. Imagine. That's where we found ourselves in this culture today. But sin makes no sense. Listen now. Sin makes no sense apart from the context of God. So the rejection of sin goes hand in hand with the rejection of the divine. Because people want complete license to behave in any way they see fit without responsibility or accountability. So what's the root of sin? Pride. What what brought Lucifer down? Arrogance. What brought Adam and Eve to think they knew better than God? The very same concept. They believed that deceit. What is the solution to sin in our life? Very often, humility. The Bible says there is no contention without pride that you have to have pride between two people to have some kind of conflict. If you are continually submitting and surrendering and humbling yourself to somebody, it's very hard to pick a fight with them. It's like boxing with Tar Baby because they don't say nothing. They just say, just look at you and smile. And you're like punching them out and and trying to get into a fight and try to to push their hot button and get a rise. If they're continually loving and surrendering and silently going through the relationship... There is no contention. It's a one-way street. There, there's, not, there's not a true fight going on. Satan was all about reputation, exaltation, position, image. And if we follow that path, we'll find ourselves lifted up, concerned about our place, concerned about our reputation. Oh, do they know I did this? Are they recognizing me? Do they know who I am? Oh, look what I'm being. That does not come from the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus sought no reputation. I've got to tell you, that flies in the face of a lot of philosophy about Christian ministry today. That is very much about position and, and exaltation and branding and, and all the rest. I think there's a place, certainly, for some of that. We must be very careful not to be lifting ourselves up and t- 
touching the glory of God. When you begin to touch the glory of God, you stop seeing his power. He'll let you continue. The gifts of God are without repentance. you're, You're continually gifted. You simply won't be anointed. You'll be traveling on momentum. It's a very dangerous place to be. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. The ultimate cross-cultural missionary. What a joy. Well, we move now from this topic to understanding that God told Cain, look, if you do well, won't you be rewarded? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at your door, but you can be a master of it. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. That's almost a military term. It's certainly a disciplinary one. Listen to a prophecy conference this weekend with General Jerry Boykin. And he was talking about nine principles of warfare that come from an ancient text that almost every war college and military institution in the country has in their library. He went over these, these nine tenets. I've chosen three of them to review with you tonight because they relate to the principle of you being an overcomer of sin and not a victim, finding victory and not being a doormat. And so he says, first of all, the first, the first two are strategy, the third is a tactic. You must know your mission. You must know your mission. Beyond, beyond an oath of office for a military enlisted person, for a, an officer or, or a, a commander, uh, orders are almost sacred. When you receive your orders, it's almost a word from on high. I have my orders. And that ours are not to wonder why, ours are but to do or die. And those orders are absolutely sacrosanct. And you are to perform them, and you are to the letter of the law, and you're responsible for them. I'm afraid too many Christians don't understand our marching orders or have them very broad, very vague, and very indistinct. Don't have it made their calling and election sure. Before they went out of business around town, a blockbuster uh, used to have a mission statement on their walls in, in, in many of their stores. And there was a very short mission statement on how they serve the customer. And, they, and, and many corporations today have a mission statement that you can say in one sentence, in one breath. Do you? You should. If you say, what is your mission? You know, so many people in the world have no idea why they're here or are so deceived about it, they're off wandering in the wilderness. And unfortunately, I think too many in the church are in the same condition don't really understand why they're here. We know we should go to church and be good little Christians. We know we have responsibilities of do's and don'ts and whatnot. But you need a mission statement. You need marching orders. You need a a, a firm command of of what you're about each day. Otherwise, you'll find things being hazy and and soft and fuzzy, and you'll you'll find your, your, your walk wandering. You don't want to be in that position. Now, it's not for me to give you those marching orders. Now, the Bible has many things to say generally about the will of God, corporately about our mission as a church, but individually you have a unique gifting you are responsible for. And when you get that bit in your mouth, if I can use an equine term, that when you, get, you see a person who understands their calling and their giftedness and they've opened it up and the Holy Spirit is... All you have to do for them is turn on the lights. 
and tell them to go home periodically. And really, they just take off. It's a wonderful thing to watch. And unfortunately, it's somewhat rare, and it ought not be. We all can have an absolutely fulfilling time of serving the Lord if we understand our giftedness. And if we aren't looking over our shoulder and looking in the next lane and wondering why we don't have that gift and understanding that you each have been given for a specific purpose, a gift to serve God, a place in line, marching orders in the, in the king's army. And you need not to be AWOL. You need to be showing up for duty. And when we do, then we do things that are beyond, beyond imagination. So know your mission, number two. The second strategy is understand your enemy. Understand your enemy. Crouching lion. Now, the Bible portrays us as sheep. What's about the worst thing a sheep could hear? There's a lion crouching at your door. This is bad news because we are defenseless. That's what the Bible says. There's a lion crouching at our door, ready to spring, ready to just rip your throat out. And all you can do is go, bah, try to scare him off. Oh, no, wait a minute. You have one more strategy. You can go to the shepherd. Ah, that's a, that's a better plan of attack, don't you think? Now, there's a lion crouching at your door. What are you going to do about it? You know. So we need to be driven to the good shepherd because he has the rod that can protect us. He has the way of fighting off the predators. And so understand your enemy. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Once again, not a good news bulletin for Peter. And, and, and that's the same approach he has to you. Given the opportunity, he would crush you. Why? Because you're so important to him? No, because he hates God. God loves you. You're as close as he can get to demolishing God. And so we need to understand that the, the enemy is out to, to rob, to steal, to devour, and he never gives up, at least in this dispensation. So the enemy has tactics. The enemy has a strategy. He understands your weaknesses. Think for a moment, if you were Satan, how would you attack you? What are your weaknesses? What kind of bait are you susceptible to? What would you, your leanings and inclinations be? And then you can, you can be certain that's what he's going to tempt you at. And you can fortify those areas. You can rip down the strongholds he may have, he have put up to try to breach the walls of your security. Understand Satan has a plan for your life. And he's, he's trying to enact it. He's crouched at your door and not yours only as we'll see in just a moment. Those are our two strategies. Know your mission, understand your enemy, and then take inventory of your weapons. We were at the National Nuclear Museum over on Eubank last night doing a little video shoot. Never been there before. Fascinating place. And they have um, the identical bomb casings for Fat Boy and Little Man, the two bombs that were dropped in August of 1945 on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. Interesting. And... um, the Japanese had no idea they were coming. In fact, in June of that year, at Potsdam, Germany, Stalin, a representative of Churchill and Roosevelt, got together and issued the Potsdam, the Potsdam rather, uh, commandment. And they gave Japan an opportunity to surrender. And they, the Prime Minister Suzuki rejected it and said, we'll, we'll fight at every house in Tokyo and the streets of Japan. And they predicted that the Casualties could run in the millions if we had to invade the mainland island 
of Japan. And so President Truman gave the orders to drop the A-bomb on Hiroshima and a few days later in Nagasaki. And within a couple of years, a total of 300,000 Japanese died from those two incinerations. They had no idea that weapon was coming. They had no idea we had it. But America did not shrink back from using their weapons. You know, I think Christians sometimes are afraid to use our most powerful weapons. We, we take communion once a month or periodically or whenever it might be. We misunderstand the power of the blood. We don't understand the shadow of the cross. We're afraid to take time to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. We hold back our best weapons. I'm afraid we too often fight the fight of faith in, in the flesh by our willpower. The Bible calls it will worship. I will change. I will stop doing this. I can overcome this sin. We've got an atomic bomb waiting behind us, and we're out there fighting with swords. And we need to not, be a, not shrink back from using the most powerful things in our arsenal. And that's what General Boykin said. Take inventory of your weaponry and use them tactically. So we need to often take sanctuary at the foot of the cross. We need to frequently, Jesus said, do this to show my death until I come. Remind yourself of that dead sacrifice. Remind yourself of my living death and my resurrection. Know the power of it. And don't be, don't be, don't be shrinking back from the roaring lion of Satan. You're saying, oh, you're getting older. You're getting frailer. You really can't serve the Lord. You failed him in some way. You, God could never use you. That's the roaring of a pathetic lion. You need to answer it with the power of the Word of God and the, the, the awesome might of His Holy Spirit and see what God will do through you. Christianity need not be a spectator sport for you anymore, something you can engage in dynamically, powerfully, and fruitfully on a regular basis. Well, uh, the, the weapons we have, we need to get them out and use them frequently. Well, There's a powerful principle we have time to go through here, and it's referred to only obliquely, but I think it's clearly said that God says in verse 7 that if you do well, won't you be accepted? If you do poorly, you're being victimized by sin. That, I think, refers to one of the most powerful principles in Scripture of reaping and sowing. Um, Cain sowed to the flesh. Abel sowed to the spirit. And we see that reaping and sowing is the best way for us to survive and thrive. If the law of sin is the clearest explanation of how we got here, reaping and sowing is the best definition of how to live here. And we ought to be recognizing the law of reaping and sowing cannot be broken. People sometimes act amazed that it's in in, in action. And we see people in counseling who have lived in in chronic disobedience to the clear principles of Scripture for years, and then they're really stunned that they're in some kind of of a predicament. And they've they've sowed to the whirlwind, and they're reaping of it now, the flesh. And and they, they can't quite put the equation together. The Bible says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap of it. And so if you live in that kind of disobedience to God's advice, don't be surprised when the fruit comes. Uh, This law, as Cain discovered, is primal, it is powerful, and it is unbreakable. 
So you, today we are reaping fruit of what we sowed three or four months ago or three or four years ago. What you're seeing in your life today is a function of the seeds you sowed some time ago. So three quick principles. What you sow, when you sow, and where you sow. Um, what you sow. It's important we sow of the Spirit. You can sow weeds. And when you sow talks about the season of life you're in and the time it takes to reap. Uh, I think many Christians are looking for the magic beans where you just throw them out there and the next morning, oh, look, a beanstalk going to heaven, just like that. All my problems are solved. It doesn't work that way. Jesus often said, look around you, understand the principles of nature. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the sparrows. It takes time. You, you, have to, you have to sow in cultivated soil. It takes time for it to, be, uh, to sprout. It has to be cultivated, and then eventually it brings forth fruit. So it's, it's what you sow. It's when you sow. Now, if you sow in the dead of winter, it's going to be difficult to uh, reap, to sow in a timely fashion. You have to be involved in a consistent spiritual discipline where you understand. And also, we have seasons of life you need to sow in. Whatever stage or age of your life you find yourself in right now, there there are prudent things you should be doing spiritually to invest to make sure you'll be reaping spiritually when the time comes. And God will show you how to do that. So what you sow is of the Spirit. When you sow is during the proper season of life. And where you sow, it needs to be sown on broken ground. Uh, The parable of of the sower, of course, you can't just sow on cement and hope it it will grow up. Now, for the miracle of life, sometimes trees grow up in a little crack of a sidewalk, but generally it doesn't work that way, now does it. And so we, we need to have a broken heart. The Bible says, break up the fallow ground of your heart. And that's where you need to put the Word of God. You know, we can, we can become a very avid spectators of biblical lectures and just listen to so much biblical truth. And it's like sowing on concrete. You need a broken heart. You need to bring a broken heart before the Lord to give Him a place, the furrows, to sow His Word, that it might grow up unto eternal life in your heart. And so the principle of sowing is at play in verse 7. Cain didn't understand it. He grew angry. And what do we learn about Cain? We call it the, the diary of a reprobate, going the way of Cain, the New Testament calls it. The way we don't want to go, the way we don't want our children to go. So Cain, virt- virtually at the end of the text, says, Cain, this is so sobering and serious, Cain left the presence of the Lord. That's an awful benediction the life of a man who lives so close to God's family. But we learn from Cain that humanity is incurably religious. Cain gave an offering, but he wasn't a spiritual man. Cain came before the Lord, but he wasn't a godly man because the heart of man is naturally religious, and religion does not equal spirituality. People of all sorts and walks of life are involved in all manner of non-Christian pursuits. So the first thing we learn is unbelievers can often have a hopeful, hopeful beginning but a woeful ending. And secondly, unbelievers offer unacceptable worship and end up angry at God. That's what happened to Cain. Unacceptable worship, anger at God, started out well, ended terribly. We don't want to go the way of Cain. A Cain, as, as part of our family portrait tonight, would be the one in, in the back. You'd see Adam and Eve, and 
You see uh, Abel, and ultimately you see Seth and whatnot, but Cain would be the one who wanted to stay out of the family portrait. And we, we learn from Cain also that just because you're having ostensibly religious activities, it can be a stench in the nostrils of God. A stench. And so Jesus came to cure mankind of incurable religiosity, if you will. He, he wants to draw you personally into relationship with him. Understanding the first royal family um, is important. And we might stand back and say, boy, they really had an unbelievable experience. Well, here's the good news. We're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We uh, are related to them um, in a very, very real way. They are our great, and you can do the exponential um, equation, grandparents, because we came from their stock from their seed, ultimately. And not just that, but if you think about Adam living 900 years, we don't know exactly how long Eve lived, but I doubt there was one day that went by in Adam's life that he didn't gaze towards Eden and have a longing look in his eyes and and a sunken feeling in his stomach. What could have been? What should have been? I, I could have lived in paradise. Now I have all this trauma. I have one child who's dead one child who's now a refugee, all this heartbreak in my relationship with my wife. And he could have had so much, yet he'd just been obedient to God. That's our family history, a fractured family one, that's for sure. And so we don't really have to only imagine what Adam and Eve were like. We can look around and see their offspring, can we not? Certainly we can. But here's the good news. Uh, sin has been cured. We're still seeing the consequences of sin. We're still seeing the causes of sin. We're seeing the, the outcome and, and the ramifications of it. But sin is on a shelf life. We are headed for a time when there will be no sin. I think that's difficult for us even to imagine, is it not? Because so much of what we say and do is filtered through a sin-filled mind, a sin-filled environment, sin-filled communications, a fallen world. And uh, we just have to kind of swallow hard like Adam and say, well, that day will come. But the day is coming. And in between this day and that great day, you need to be aware of what season of, of time we're living in. Because things are being accelerated in almost an unimaginable manner today. You know, there in just 70 years, well, let's just backtrack a little bit. We have a few minutes here. Mankind would... The Cain and Abel issue is you can just exponentially move that forward nationally. That's what nations would like to do to each other. That's what Pakistan would like to do to India. That's what Syria would like to do to Israel. Uh, that's what Venezuela would like to do to their neighbors. That's, what, that's the national issue of, of, of fallen man pridefully wanting to destroy his brother. But fortunately, God held back. He retarded the progress of man for so many years that we we couldn't do it on a a global scale until 1940. We talked about that a couple months ago in a story about Israel's dark hour. You might want to get that that DVD or that uh, CD, rather. But here's here's a principle. There were lots of world-governing empires, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Grecians, whatnot, that would have loved to be tyrants and totalitarians over the whole world. They just didn't have the technology. But three times 
In the last 70 years, there have been regimes that had that power with the advent of nuclear fission and hydroelectric power, etc. The Nazis, the communists, and now the Islamo-fascists. Never happened before. Now, Hitler was just like Herod, okay? And, and uh, Khrushchev, who stood at the pulpit of the United Nations in early 60s, if you don't remember this, took off his shoe, banged it on the lectern, and said, we will bury you. There were probably some crazy liberal commentator going, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> he, they meant precisely that, but they were restrained from doing it. So you got your Nazis, you've got your communists, but now you've got your Islamo-fascists, the radical Muslims. And they're a whole different breed. First of all, they're covert. Second of all, there's 2.3 billion Muslims in the world. Not all are radical, but if you take 10% of them, you've got a pretty big nation of people who are angry at you. And secondly, they've got the weapons. Now, this just didn't happen in April of 1979 when the Ayatollah Khomeini sat down on the tarmac in Tehran and the first modern Islamic Republic was born. This has been brewing since the days of Constantinople. But now they have the ways. Now they have the means. Now they have the oil money that we're funding our own demise. And so these are the days in which we live. This just isn't, oh, it's always been like this. There's always been a threat. There's always been an enemy. enemy. There's always been an antagonist out there. This isn't just the Japanese with an aircraft carrier in the Pacific. This isn't just Hitler uh, threatening to run over Western Europe. They now have the means by way of nuclear weapons and by way of transportation to threaten our very way of life. And so those are the days in which we live. You know the other different component? There's a spiritual aspect to their agenda. The Nazis weren't spiritual. They, they were a, a political force. Certainly the communists were atheists. They had, they had no spiritual agenda. What makes the Islamic fascists so very, very dangerous is they think they're doing it for God. And if somebody said, how do you fight an enemy who thinks they win when they die? It's a very difficult war to, to, to conduct. And they're willing to commit homicide to get their means across. These are the days in which we live. The tribe of Issachar, David said, they understood the times in which they live. Men, we need to know when we're living. We just can't be about athletics and about privileges and about possessions. We can't just be involved in the pleasures of the day. We to understand the times in which we live. People are terrified outside these walls. They, they see the news and they don't know how to cope with it. We have the answer. We know there's a world-governing empire coming that's going to demand a mark of the beast, etc., etc. We've been learning these conferences and these prophetic books and these biblical literature issues for so many, many years. We must not keep it to ourselves. It's our responsibility to take these marching orders, take them very seriously, and take them to the streets of our world. Because our days are numbered. Jesus said, you must work while it's still light because night is coming when no man can work. So here's the commission. Here's a take-home for us tonight. First of all, on the macro scale, we need to take it to the streets, commit ourselves to personal evangelism, to lifestyle outreach. 
and, and understand where we live and when we live because I tell you, the prophetic gas pedal is to the mat. Secondly, on the micro level, bringing it back to our text tonight, to our family fractured portrait. Some of us have fractured families. Some of us have children we are sideways with. Some of you have prodigal children you need to go out and meet. Some you need to reconcile with and not allow them to be outcast as Cain became. Some of you might be prodigals out of relationship and communication with your closest relatives. It would please God to humble yourself, to submit, to ask forgiveness and to reconcile those relationships. Give God the opportunity for healing you can't accomplish in the flesh. Understand that the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. Things that may have existed in your relationships, bulwarks for years, for decades, that have inhibited relationship and communication, God can blow them up in the power of his love and his Holy Spirit. So if you are a prodigal, go home. If you've got a prodigal, go out and meet them. And then finally, just a closing thought of application before we have the the worship team come up here and we're going to uh, sing a a song and have the opportunity for anybody who wants to commit themselves to Christ. I just want to bring this in in for a landing as to what Cain and Abel really can mean to us. Because whether it's a close relationship in a family, an interior family, the nuclear family, if you will, that sometimes blows up, or whether it's a, a relationship at work, God wants us to live peaceably with all men as much as lies within us. We have a responsibility in our community and in our home and in our, in our workplace to be agents of peace, to be not undercover but very proactive proponents for the love of God because that's the thing that should mark people. They should, they should know if there's anything that is peculiar about us it's that we love God and love each other. And we can never too frequently make a recommitment to saying, I want to be a free-flowing vessel for the love of God. And I'll tell you what, you have a corner on the market in much of our world today. There won't be a lot of competition to love your enemy. There won't won't be a, a lot of drive. You won't have to worry about being in first place to forgive those who have offended you. That will set you apart. That will mark you. That will make you a different sheep. Remember, there is a crouching lion there's a greater shepherd who has a power to overcome and to see you through to victory. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are reminded that sometimes we lay down the laws in our our homes and it's important for us to set boundaries but we also must simultaneously pick up our crosses and follow you because the law came, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Help us to be agents of his grace, of his unmerited favor, Lord, because we know that without relationship, there will only be rebellion at home. So I pray for the men and women here today who have children, for their relationships with them, Lord, because ultimately... Our most important legacy is our family. Before our ministry and our business and our our personal pleasures must come our, our family. Help us to be men and women who are given over, Lord, to communicating the truth 
and illustrating the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. Anyone here tonight would like to make a commitment to Christ, walking or straying far from Him, I'd like you to stand to your feet right now. I'm going to pray for you while we have this time of quiet. I'm not going to try to coerce or convince. You know if you're being called to make a commitment. God will speak to your heart. We'll just ask you to stand up right now. God bless you. And just make it real. Make it public. Make it personal. Anyone else tonight? God bless you. back there. I'm going to pray you'd speak to hearts and just go through the hard exterior, Lord, and get through to the real us. Give us direction. Give us guidance. Give some marching orders, Lord. Give some encouragement as needed. Let your Holy Spirit just move in this room tonight and touch and, and do as only He can do pray for those who are standing. Lord, you know their hearts. I pray you would meet their needs. Help them understand what you're saying and doing in their life. Lead them, Lord, to a close relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.